For our second session, cases were presented to faculty members Drs. Matt Ellis, John Mackey, and Ruth O'Regan, beginning with a case presented by Dr. Margaret Deutsch of a 70-year-old woman who presented with a 1.8 centimeter node-negative, ER-positive, PR-negative, and HER2-positive tumor. Her general medical condition was reasonable. She was a long-term smoker, though, and that was problematic in terms of her wound healing on her chest wall. Her husband had recently been treated for bladder cancer with fairly aggressive chemotherapy that he did not tolerate well, which clearly weighed into her decision about what she wanted to do. So she was already coming in concerned about the possibility of getting chemo? Oh, yeah. (laughs) What did she tell you specifically? She specifically told me that she wasn't sure she could do it. Did you talk to her about the fact that maybe the chemo that she'd heard about wouldn't be necessarily the same as what she would get? And what- yeah, we had several long discussions, and her husband was there about chemotherapy and what it would involve and what type of chemotherapy, and that it probably wouldn't be as toxic as what her husband experienced. And as this was going on, she had slow wound healing on her chest wall, and so she kept kind of just putting it off and saying, well... I'll think about it when I come back, and my wound is better, and she just sort of put it off for months. So, John, we have a patient who has a 1.8 centimeter ER-positive, HER2-positive tumor that's node-negative. How would you be sorting this out? And a 70-year-old woman is reluctant about chemotherapy. Well, I think the first thing that we all have to face is that she is 70, and clearly you've done the due diligence in figuring out what her biological status is. Obviously, age isn't everything, but you're telling me she's a long-term smoker, had wound healing difficulties, and on top of that is not keen to pursue chemotherapy. So you've done everything appropriately with the assessment of this woman. Assuming she had normal left ventricular function, then you're entering into the question of really what additional benefit chemotherapy is going to provide to her over hormone therapy. And you're also facing, of course, the fact that we really don't know what trastuzumab would do without having given chemotherapy in some fashion as well. So we're actually dealing with a couple of issues. First of all, for women 70 and over, there's very little data to suggest that the magnitude of the benefit of chemotherapy is very large in that age group anyway. The meta-analysis had very few people in the most recent publication of that age and beyond. I think we're becoming more accepting of the fact that they probably benefit as much. However, the numbers are small in the trials, but you've got to be very careful and very aggressive in your support. Other issues, the delay from surgery to initiation of chemotherapy. If it's beyond 12 weeks, we now have good data from the British Columbia registry that these women's survival is impaired. So by the virtue of her delayed wound healing and perhaps reluctance to make a quick decision, she might actually be beyond the window when chemotherapy can be given optimally. So obviously you'd like to get women on treatment within 12 weeks. That's what the best data we have to date shows. In her, I'm not sure how easy it would be to get her through some of the standard chemotherapies that we see used with Herceptin, which generally include anthracyclines and taxanes. So I guess you'd have to have one of those lengthy discussions about whether or not she warrants chemotherapy given her physiologic status and whether you bend all the rules and give her naked Herceptin with hormone therapy, for which there is absolutely no data. And if she asked you, what do you think about that idea? Of course, you've got to individualize it to her, but in general, how do you feel about it? Well, I think that we have a lot of data that trastuzumab works in virtually every setting. 
and there's no particular reason that you absolutely need chemotherapy to get some benefit from trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. But that, again, hasn't been shown. And obviously it's crying out for a trial to be done so that we can give glib answers when we're in these kind of positions. But the reality is that would be a terribly difficult trial to conduct, randomizing people to chemotherapy or not in this situation. And I'm not sure it will ever be answered in my career. But if you have availability of trastuzumab, for such a woman, if the health care system would cover it or her insurance would cover it, I wouldn't criticize you for doing it. All I can tell you is we really don't know how much benefit she's deriving. Ruth, there's a lot of debate about these patients with node-negative smaller tumors. I want to read you a quote from an interview I just did recently with John's BCRG colleague, Dennis Sleeman. I asked them, bottom line, in what kinds of situations are you not using trastuzumab for node-negative patients? And he said, the only situation I consider not using trastuzumab, and here it's a judgment call, is DCIS with maybe an area of microinvasion. If there's a frank invasive carcinoma that's HER2 positive, I don't care about the size. That tumor, in my opinion, is HER2 driven tumor and should be looked at accordingly. Agree, disagree, or in between? I think that's a little strong, I have to say. The other issue, of course, that comes up is which hormonal therapy would you give her? And, of course, we have previously believed that the aromatase inhibitors are better in patients with HER2-positive cancers, but now we have data from the Big 198 study and the TransATAC data showing that actually in the HER2-positive group, they're probably both somewhat intrinsically hormone-resistant. I would do what you were considering doing, which is giving chemo plus transtuzumab. John, what's your approach to the patient with a HER2-positive node-negative tumor? And what kinds of numbers do you give to patients in terms of their risk to relapse? Well, until a few years ago, we didn't have a good handle on this because there wasn't a lot of data. But we now have, I think, two good studies. We have a Scandinavian study that is suggesting that even tumors one centimeter and below have a substantial risk of recurrence if they're FISH-positive for her too. And the same now is coming out of the BC Cancer Agency, which is the British Columbia Cancer Agency, suggesting that these women have a substantially higher risk of recurrence if they're HER2 positive, even if they're one centimeter and below, than if they are HER2 negative. And in general, I think we're looking at, even for tumors a centimeter and below, a recurrence risk in 10 years of between 10 and 20 percent. Now, one of the interesting things that you raise in this case is that she had breast conservation. And we have some data that we have not published yet, but we've looked at our series of HER2-positive patients who had breast conservation. And HER2 is the biggest predictor of local recurrence in breast, as well as, obviously, distant recurrence as well. So all I can tell you is that for her, particularly having had breast conservation, I would be concerned about her risk of recurrence. If you include in-breast recurrence in the figures, I would estimate we're looking at probably 25% just off the cuff, risk of recurrence in the next 10 years. Obviously, with her other comorbidities, she might not make it that long, but at the end of the day, we have to hope for the best. And I would definitely have a discussion with her that trastuzumab-based therapy would be a benefit to her. My problem is, could I safely give one of the proven chemotherapy regimens to her? And to date, the one that looks least cardiotoxic, if you were to take all of the various approaches, would be some sort of sequential HERA-like approach, or the TCH from the 006 study. I don't know how well she would necessarily tolerate taxane-based therapy, but TCH would probably be less toxic than AC, paclitaxel, as per the other trials. Obviously, the HERA study allowed you to give virtually any chemotherapy up front if you had a gentle one in mind. No one would argue with you if you took that approach with her. 
And if she says, you know, I really don't want to take chemo, would you be willing to give me the trastuzumab alone? Well, in my setting as a Canadian practitioner, I don't have the option unless she can reach into her back pocket and pull out 45,000 Canadian pesos. Well, let's say she does that. Or just trying to focus on the clinical. The Canadian people always bring up the, this is their you know thing. I can't fair out. Okay, so we we can't just we can't let you off the hook that easy. Okay, okay. okay. forget the reimbursement for a second. Okay, I've recruited just... you to St. Louis, John. So now I need yes. to practice. Like well, yes, if she had good baseline LV function, I would take fifty-five percent for a seventy-year-old with a smoking history. I would treat her. What about the choice of chemotherapy in general as a result of what happened in San Antonio when the BCRG data were presented? Can you maybe just summarize what was shown there and how you think that impacts clinical decision-making off-protocol now? Well, the BCRG-006 study was a three-arm trial. The control arm was AC-docetaxel, standard schedule and dose. The second arm was ac TH, where T was docetaxel, H was trastuzumab, and the third arm was this novel concoction taxotere carboplatinum herceptin that had been largely based on preclinical data and efficacy in a phase two trial. That study was run, and we now have three-year outcomes, and we know that patients who got the TCH regimen did just as well as patients who got ACTH, and both of the herceptin-containing regimens did substantially better than patients who did not get trastuzumab. The really reassuring thing about the TCH regimen is that the rate of cardiotoxicity was no higher than four cycles of AC. So there were four patients on the trial with ACT who got heart failure. There were four with TCH and there were 20 who had ACTH. So there was a five-fold increase in clinical congestive heart failure, grade three, grade four. And there were no leukemias in TCH, whereas leukemias were seen in the anthracycline-containing arms. So in terms of global safety, when we look at everything, we think TCH is a safe and effective regimen, and I would definitely consider it in a population of women, particularly if they're older. I would think now we're looking at maybe the backbone of chemotherapy is not as important as it used to be. I don't think anthracyclines are necessarily required in a HER2-amplified patient because we have a non-anthracycline regimen that's proven in a randomized trial. And it's changed my practice. I used to give ACTH until what happened in basically late October when we got the first signal from this trial that TCH was equivalent and less toxic. And then I had to wait. Basically, I couldn't talk about it for six weeks (laughs) while I'm waiting for the presentation. And I couldn't tell my colleagues. I couldn't tell my patients. It was a very difficult situation because these data are highly embargoed. But in the back of my office, I got all the paperwork ready for the submission for the regulatory agencies and got everything ready to go. So after the presentation on December 16th, I was able to change my practice. And I gather, too, that the next adjuvant study, BCRG and NSABP, is going to combine. And what you told me was it's going to be TCH plus or minus BEV? Yes. The exciting thing is that this result leads us to the possibility of rapidly integrating other biological therapies into the HER2-positive population. And the NSABB had approached BCRG about two years ago and said, look, we'd like to run another HER2 trial, but we know that we can't accrue within NSABP in a really timely fashion. We need to go global. You're the big kids on the block. Can we work with you? And we I said, guess the issue here is there are less events now. 
because the baseline trastuzumab is going to knock yeah. the recurrences out in half. It's not an issue. When you have 54 countries and 550 cancer centers participating in your studies, that's just BCIRG and plus NSABP, we can accrue a properly powered trial. But I mean, I guess that was their concern that you would need a lot more patients. Oh, yes. Yeah. And it's an appropriate concern. So we've joined forces. And as of the publication of 006, the way forward is crystal clear. We've got TCH as an acceptable control arm. And now we could add in bevacizumab. You see, our concern had been, if you take a woman, you give her anthracyclines, then you give her trastuzumab, and then you follow it up with hypertension, which happens is a class effect for all of the known antiangiogenics, you're a sitting duck for cardiotoxicity. And I lost sleep over the fact that we might be killing women on this trial, potentially, if we were to use all of those agents in sequence or combination. And I didn't know if we could do it safely. But now it seems quite clear to me that the issue is a much smaller one. And with TCH, we've got a 0.4% risk of cardiotoxicity, and if we consider 4% acceptable from the previous experience with trastuzumab trials, I doubt that bevacizumab is going to bring us up that high, especially if we watch the blood pressures closely. So Matt, this morning we asked the faculty of Amon Bazdar, Kathy Pritchard, and Joe Sperano what their usual chemotherapy is going to be at this point with trastuzumab, and they all said anthracycline taxane, so they haven't kind of come on board yet. You're hearing John's perspective. Where are you on this issue? TCH in three letters. John, it must have been interesting when you talked to the NSABP. Obviously, you want to consider how docs are going to respond to this and are they going to be okay with it. And there are a lot of people now who are still saying, you know, have that security blanket of all that data with the anthracycline. What do you think? Well, I think it's true that we've worked very hard for 20 plus years to show that anthracyclines have a modest improvement in outcomes in breast cancer in the adjuvant setting. And it's a little difficult to all of a sudden stop what we've been doing for 20 years and discard what used to be one of our most effective options. But I think that the data is pretty strong, and we had a lot of opposition, I must admit, from NSAVP as to whether or not we could do without anthracyclines in the study design. And we had looked at a number of designs for which there was no consensus. But all I can tell you is the 006 data stands as it is, and basically any concerns and disagreements among the trialists around the table just collapsed once the 006 data was shown. So the trialists are willing, at least on a clinical trial, to accept TCH as the standard of care and an acceptable standard of care. As for the TOPO2 question that you're raising, last year we presented our first interim analysis And it's a subgroup of patients for which we had samples. It was 2,000 of the 3,200 patients. We had FISH analysis of TOPO2. And it turned out the co-amplified patients looked at that time like they might be trending to better results if they got ACTH. But it was a trend. The statistical significance wasn't there. And although Dennis put the slide up and said, this is the p-value and this is hypothesis generating and this is not proven, he was so enthusiastic in his presentation that the take-home message is entirely different. And here we are. We have the you know, data with another year of follow-up, a full three years, which is as mature as any other study. We now have 3,100 samples microarrayed, and we have fish analysis on them. So we have more events. We also have more baseline data, and that signal's lost. So all I can tell you is that we can't find it anymore. We never proved it in the first place. It was looking interesting, and I was excited too. But bluntly, I think we were wrong, and we called it too early. I don't know that you really called it, though, because, I mean, actually, last year when they presented that, it was very clear that you all said, I know these curves look different, but you really needed to wait. 
Well, it's true. We said that, but at the end of the day, you know, when everybody's smiling about it and the amount of excitement around that possible predictive assay, because here the holy grail of breast oncology is to find a predictive assay, something to tell us what to do. And we've got two already, so we're predictive assay junkies. If you look at the other tumor sites, they have nothing. So at least we're two ahead, and we'd love to have number three, right? And then we could, instead of having our two-by-two block, we could actually go into three dimensions, and then we'd have more boxes, but we don't have it. We're stuck with ER and her too. Matt, would you comment on CMIC and whether you think that might turn out to be useful in this situation? I'm quite hopeful. I'm a little bit concerned about this trial design, although I think it's reasonable. I think that, of course, we've improved the outcome of the patients quite dramatically, and then we're layering on yet another therapy, and a lot of the patients obviously are not going to benefit. Um, So I'm interested in teasing out groups of patients who do so well with Herceptin based chemotherapy, that adding bevacizumab makes absolutely no sense. And so the one marker that would potentially be useful here is semic amplification. And as you remember, the term in genetics is a synthetic lethal event. In other words, MIC amplified, HER2 amplified tumors, when you inhibit them with chemo and trastuzumab, basically destroy the cell through apoptosis. The cell's unable to survive that stress. And so I don't know whether we have a MIC analysis of the BCRG6 trial yet or whether you can talk about it because obviously I can't talk about it because it's being run as we speak. Okay, great. So it is being done. Oh yes, it will be done, but Michael Press is our lead pathologist. He is a very careful and cautious man in generating data. And one of the issues we had with the CMIC story is that where the cutoffs were has never been officially presented and how the cutoffs were derived. It was something that we couldn't get a good handle on. So unlike HER2 amplification, where we knew where black was black and white was white, and maybe there was a bit of gray in the middle, but we could draw our line in the sand, the CMIC question is not so clearly answered as yet. So we have to define the cutoff even after we've done it to make a binomial determination. But I want to point out one thing, though, that in one sense, CMIC is exciting because maybe it gives us that third dimension, but it's telling us a bit different than ER. It doesn't tell us whether Herceptin is good. It says you'll benefit a lot from Herceptin or you'll benefit a tremendous amount from Herceptin. And that's a finer distinction. And it's not in my mind, as critical a point as anything that ER or Herter tells us. So this is maybe just gilding the lily. I would hope that we can find a cut point that happens to be the same as Sum Paik and that we have that ability too. Dr. Schnell? I have a concern about extrapolating the Herceptin data into populations where it really hasn't been adequately studied, and I'm especially concerned about extrapolating Herceptin adjuvant data into elderly patients, especially when it includes anthracyclines. And I just wondered, you all kind of talked around that. It would be my view that there's a lot of subclinical cardiac disease in 70-year-old women that is not true in the patients where it really has been studied, the median age of which is around 50 or 51. The populations are very small in the three or four studies for which there's data available. And particularly if you step into node-negative disease where there isn't a lot of information at all, I'm very personally concerned about recommending adjuvant Herceptin. And if I do recommend adjuvant Herceptin because of high risk, I'm strongly leaning at the moment toward a THC sort of combination. I wonder if the three of you had any comments about that. John? Well, again, as your token Canadian on the panel, I have the fallback position. We've written the guidelines to say, if you give Herceptin, it's with chemo. So if you don't have a chemo candidate by virtue of age or comorbidity, then it just doesn't enter into the equation. However, I agree. I think that 
we are underestimating the cardiac risks that breast cancer survivors are actually achieving with our therapies. And I say achieving in quotes because the reality is we're often taking women. We don't do a good cardiac evaluation, but we found when we do do so on clinical studies directed at that question that the women coming in for their breast cancer consultations generally have a poor VO2 max, so they have poor exercise capacity. They're often deconditioned. Again, hypercholesterolemia is quite commonly not known. We have problems with brachial artery reactivity that we're seeing after adjuvant hormonal therapy and after adjuvant chemotherapy that we're inducing. Basically, the endothelium are being poisoned somehow through the breast cancer experience. And on top of that, we're throwing in anthracyclines, potentially trastuzumab, and then hypertensive-inducing agents. So the problem is our clinical trials are generally stopping after about 10 years. In fact, the ATAC trial, for one, there are no more data going to be collected on these women after 10 years. So these issues are probably going to be underestimated even in the published literature. And when we look at things like the SEER data, which just was reported in the JCO at the end of last year, showing that women who got anthracyclines had two and a half times the rate of admission to hospital for congestive heart failure as an age-matched population, I mean, we should be careful with these women. So I agree with you completely. Dr. Deutsch, could you follow up with your patient? After many weeks of equivocating, she finally said, I really just don't want chemotherapy. (laughs) And so I sent her off to radiation. She came back from radiation. And then I said, well, would you consider taking Herceptin? And we talked about the heart issues and did a MUGA. I think I did an echocardiogram. And her ejection fraction was somewhere 60%. And so we went ahead and decided to give her a year's worth of Herceptin with Arimidex. So where is she right now in the therapy? She is about nine months into her septin. Her injection fraction hasn't changed. She's doing well. She's happy she's doing something, but not chemotherapy. (laughs) Marianne, how do you think this trial design of TCH plus or minus BEV is going to sit in clinical practice? I don't think it'd be a problem. You know, any of us that sat at San Antonio and saw the leukemic issue, that hit me as much, if not more, than the heart failure. So I think that's not going to be a problem. Again, lower risk, you know, no negative patients? You know, I have the clinical trial. If they can go on trial, I'd like to do it. So, John, what about the big study? Well, the breast intergroup study that is being launched, it turns out the name will be ALTO. And the name that had previously been discussed, Aphrodite, has not worked out. But the Aphrodite slash ALTO trial is one in which another HER2-targeted therapy that everyone around this room is familiar with, lapatinib, is being explored in the adjuvant setting, either alone or in combination or in sequence with Herceptin. And so my understanding of the regimen is that it will be HERA-like and that people will get chemotherapy. You can either give the trastuzumab and or lapatinib either with chemotherapy or after it, after completion of anthracyclines. It's an 8,000 patient trial. It's four arms. I think it's a good question that they're asking. It's a different one from the BCIRG006 follow-on study because it's essentially asking what's the optimal way to hit the HER2 pathway, extracellularly, intracellularly, or both. And, you know, it's a different question. In general, all I can say is that most trials we've done have shown that hitting one pathway more than one way has not borne fruit. I mean, if you look at the estrogen receptor story, we don't do total hormonal blockade, we do sequences. And so, arguing just by analogy and not really understanding all of the molecular biology, I'd say we might see something similar here, that we're not going to make a major leap by combining two anti-HER2 therapies at the same time. 
I prefer the BCRG006 design because we're looking at a whole new class. We've got preclinical evidence that there should be substantial potentiation of the anti-cancer effect by combining these two agents. But obviously, there are two trials in this population now. There are actually four that I know of. The other two are simply duration questions, which are of incredible interest to the payers, but of much less interest, I think, to the patients. So, Ruth, one of the interesting things about this ALTO study is there are four arms in terms of the anti-HER2 therapy. One arm's got trastuzumab alone. The other's got both together as there's a sequence where they both get it. But there's a fourth arm where there's lapatinib as the only anti-HER2 therapy, no trastuzumab. How do you feel about putting patients on that study, particularly maybe multiple node positive patients? Yeah, I know I'm probably in the minority here, but I actually find that quite a bit of a problem because we only have, you know, one positive metastatic trial with lapatinib. We don't even have a first-line metastatic trial. So I'm a little leery of that. And I do agree with John. I think the targeting with the lapatinib and Herceptin may not work out because remember, Cardis Artiega did a trial through ECOG looking at Jafitinib and Transtuzumab, and it was completely negative. Obviously, it's not exactly the same thing, but, you know, it does suggest that perhaps targeting these intracellular and extracellular may not be the way to go. So I do have some issues with that trial, and I actually kind of prefer the BCRG study design, I think because of Mark Pegram's data with the bevacizumab and transtuzumab in the metastatic setting. So I would have some issues about that trial. Matt, what are your thoughts? Would you be comfortable in a patient just getting lapatinib as the only anti-HER2 therapy in the adjuvant setting? I think so. I mean, if you look at, let's say, for example, the ATAC trial, you know, there was a drug, anastrozole, which some people were very concerned about the idea patients want to get tamoxifen. But I think essentially the winning argument was that both effectively targeted the estrogen receptor. And I think you'd have to say very clearly that both lapatinib and Herceptin effectively target the HER2 kinase. And I think it's very important that we may in a situation to offer patients maintenance oral therapy over IV therapy. So I think that the trial has adequate equipoise and should be strongly supported. The last thing I would say is I'm delighted (laughs) that there are two different approaches to the problem because, as you remember, with the trastuzumab, we basically had several trials that were essentially the same bar dancing on the head of a pin, and we ended up merging the two. Whereas now we're going to have a trial looking at bevacizumab and a trial looking at lapatinib, and I think that that's a much more preferable situation. 